My name is Tony, and I was in a cult for over a decade. And my name is Lindsay, and my sister was in a cult for over a decade. And now I'm out. Lindsay and my family helped get me out, and we have created a podcast. Playing in Traffic. We interview survivors of the Wimscog. We cover topics of healing and topics of all things about cults. So tune in, like, subscribe, whatever all that means, and enjoy the process of deconstruction. Welcome to Playing in Traffic. This is our disclaimer song. This is our disclaimer song. It's our opinion. Don't sue us. Don't sue us. If you didn't want us to make a podcast about you, then you probably shouldn't have started a religion where you brainwashed people and separated them from your family, so it's kind of your fault. But don't sue us. Don't sue us. You know who you are, so don't do it. Don't sue us. Welcome to this very special episode of Playing in Traffic. Today, we have our very first interview with a former member of the Wimscog, uh, for somebody from out of the United States. So today, we're interviewing Tara, who is joining us from Australia, and she is a former member of the Wimscog. She was in from 2013 until 2021. She was a house church leader for a short time in Australia, and she also um, was part of the Nepal church for a few years with her husband. So we're excited to learn about that because we heard a lot of propaganda about the Nepal church. So I can't wait to hear about that. Anyway, hi, Tara. Thank you for coming on. Hello. It's so good to meet you guys. (laughs) Hi. Uh, Tara's time traveling right now, so it's Friday night for us, and Tara is already into tomorrow, so this is so exciting, so cool. You are time traveling, that's so cool. (laughs) Well, so are you guys. True, we're in the future. (laughs) We cannot wait to hear everything about what's going on over there. You, As you know, being in there a long time, they don't like us to communicate, especially with somebody from another country. So I'm very curious to see what it's like over there and what's going on. So you were baptized in 2013. How did you get tangled up into this group? So I was preached to um, from some basically students going door to door. Um, there was a Korean girl and boy, and they knocked on my door when I was actually really deeply searching for a church to go to. I had been church hopping and um, they told me about God the mother in the Bible and I was overjoyed and fascinated and uh, I really thought that there should be a female figure um, somewhere in Christianity, I guess. And basically just started Bible studying and I stopped church hopping, went to this church, and I thought it was just the best. <laughs> Were there a lot of members in, in the church that you started at? 
No, it was a house church. There was probably on a Sabbath day would be about 20 members, um, not including kids. And that was including like 10 of them were Korean preachers. <laughs> probably felt special and... I felt super special, especially when I realized how important it was to the Korean preachers to have local members coming into the church. So I thought that's kind of why I thought I had found like the truth, because I was looking for a place that was full of love and there was so many the ratio of um, gospel workers to members was basically one to one. So the love bombing was intense. Ooh, that is such a good point. So they could really focus in on you individually. I was 20 years old when I was first baptized. So, and I was just studying and I was deeply, deeply spiritual. Um, I should tell you that I was, at the time, my appearance was quite different. I was into like alternative lifestyle. So I had dreadlocks and piercings and um, <laughs> was not a conventional looking person. And um, that's awesome. It was just, <laughs> it was just really, um, really nice. I thought you know, everyone was nice. It was interesting. The Bible studies were interesting. The other people there, you know, the members, some of the members in that particular church had been there for years and years before I had gotten there. So um, that really made, you know, even heightens the gospel worker to lay member ratio even more. Um, even the local members were quite experienced and um there were times when it was a bit irritating because obviously you're getting so much attention and I'm not a person who enjoys being the center of attention so at times I was really like chill out everybody just relax you know <laughs> I don't understand what's going on here like why are you on me all the time no it's okay I can get myself to church like I don't need you to pick me up I'll come if I want and and I didn't understand why they were so intense about it <laughs> like pretty quickly bring anybody else in with you I did bring one person in who had become my boyfriend at the time um after about three months I met this guy and preached to him and you know we were together for a year and a half um a lot of that in the church and we thought we were gonna like start a church together and <laughs> all of these things it did not work out yeah. um can I ask a question how long um you sound like you came into the church as a very like creative and unique and free spirit um as you as you were in there, how long was it until they sort of wanted you to change and to conform into, you know, their cookie cutter gospel worker? Uh, it did not take very long. Um, I will also add at this point that 
I found out years later that the people who were looking after me had been told not to put too much effort into me because of my appearance. Um, and don't get me wrong, I was I was definitely the most interested person that they had on their list at the time. <laughs> I was showing up to church every day. Um, and then a, after a couple of months, I think, the pastor started studying with me, or the overseer, the missionary, started studying with me. And there were just subtle hints, like the way that he would look at my clothes or because I was, you know, I dress nicely. I thought I looked great um, and I did look great, but it wasn't, you know, I didn't fit in there. Um, and yeah, so probably a couple of months. And then I changed a lot on my own. Uh, after about six months, I cut my dreads off. And that was that was not because of pressure from them at all. They never, ever made me feel as if I should change my hair. And I was very free-spirited. And um, I knew what I wanted at the time. So I did that of my own volition. I just felt like it was time to let that phase go. And um, so I had short hair. And... They gave me some clothes to wear, <laughs> like kind of secondhand clothes. And I'm bigger than all of the girls there. So I tried to squeeze into some of these like Korean church dresses. <laughs> and I looked <laughs> probably, I think I looked a bit silly. <laughs> but, you know, I was trying to look nice. And then I, I tried really hard. But the whole time I was in there, I was trying to fit in. And I just never did. Because the clothes just don't suit my body type, I think. Um, yeah. And it's hot. It's really, really hot where I live. So it's very difficult to get around in a jacket and stockings and pencil skirts. Um, I also have a lot of like, uh, I've had chronic pain for many, many years and wearing pencil skirts in particular caused a problem for me because I couldn't move properly, but I wore them anyway. So <laughs> I, I just imagine all the damage we did to our bodies in our heels in those little tiny tight skirts that they made you squeeze into. They also gave me clothes. I think that's one of the things they must do to try to change your outfit. Right. They did that yes. too. And they would like shame me. Like I can see your bra. That's really ungraceful. Mm -hmm. And I would be like, no, you can't. I know you cannot see my bra, but like they would gaslight me. Like they could see it. And then I'd be always self-conscious. Like, am I covered correctly? Uh -huh. You know? Right. Yeah, that was a huge source of anxiety for me, actually, throughout the years, because, like I said, I'm number one, bigger than a lot of the girls who are there. So I'm hotter than they are, even, um, you know, they don't, they just simply don't have as much on them as I do. And <clears throat> I real, I was quite a strong-minded feminist as well so you know I was like no bra <laughs> um so but that of course was completely unacceptable and um I was constantly trying to find clothes that would be appropriate and because we live in a small town as well 
there's not the shops <laughs> you know you either buy online or and and possibly get something which is not what you think it's going to be so you're wasting money which I didn't have because I was poor because I was a gospel worker and only wanted to work part-time and couldn't work Saturdays so my job you know choices were limited um yeah it's one of <laughs> that's probably the first thing that made me really happy when I got out I immediately changed my dress style <laughs> and wore you know what I was comfortable in and that was just the biggest um freedom act of freedom <laughs> but see I feel ang- anxiety about it because I knew what to wear there and I don't know what to wear now like there's too many choices and I don't know what my style is so I think I need to like explore a little bit so Tara so when you were in there that's where you met your husband yes we were actually introduced um so he was in a church that's about I don't know two and a half thousand k's away from where I was um kilometers sorry (laughs) so I don't know what that is in miles um and the pastor so what happened was we in my church we had the same pastor he was there for like seven years and then at one point he left and the new pastor who came was from um a church where he had known my now husband so he saw me and there was no brothers in the church (laughs) um there was zero prospects for me (laughs) and I was like the only local gospel worker and the only youth um the only local well I was the only youth at the time all of the Korean preachers had gotten married um or were like over well over 35 so um he basically saw me and was reminded of my husband and contacted his church and said is he still single you know and and set us up um set up a meeting and uh did you my know husband, that you were doing that or were you, were you kind of blindsided by that no no I knew he sat me down and was asked me um you know, there's a brother that I know that I think would be a really good match for you. Would you like to meet him? Um, that part, that missionary who did that for us, um, he was a bit of a different breed. He was very, he didn't really play by the rules. Um, he was very unusual for an overseer. He kind of did what would work for the members he was really you know a bit of a free spirit himself he would just go out and do whatever he wanted to do really um yeah he was pretty cool <laughs> but did you know did you know that they were wanting to arrange for you guys to get married or were they just arranging yeah. for you guys to meet uh well they were just arranging for us to meet and he said to me if you don't like him send him back <laughs> you know you don't have to there's no pressure here. So that I was not pressured at all. And neither was my husband. I know that that's not always the case. I know that there are definitely 
a lot of cases that I've heard um, stories of where people were pressured. There was actually a case in Australia that I heard of that happening and the sister didn't get married and she actually left the church because she felt that she was being pressured into marriage. So when you met him, did you like him? Yeah, um, we actually, our story is a little bit unusual as well. He spent more than a week with me and the overseer encouraged us to get to know each other as much as possible. He said, don't preach, don't go out and do church work while you're here. Just go out, have coffee, have dinner, you know, and get to know each other. Um, so we spent quite a lot of time together. We went and did things and like dated. Um, and by the end of his time here, I was actually really surprised by my feelings towards him. I was attracted to him and I would have married him regardless at the time. I was like, okay, whatever, you know, this is probably the only time I'm going to get a chance to marry like a gospel worker. So um, I would have married him no matter who he was, but he is the best person. We're still married. We're still very happy. He has actually left the church as well um, in December last year. So we're very happy. I didn't realize that you guys were still married for some reason. I didn't, I didn't know. So that's really, I, I'm so happy. to assume that we weren't. <laughs> I mean, I know that a lot of people, once, um, once one person leaves, then they break up or um, they get divorced. But we, like I said, we were really happy together. We've been through a lot together. and. I specifically, when I did leave, I actually specifically said to him, let's not break up over this. Like, I'm going to try my best to make you happy. I still love you. If you want to be in the church, it's all good. You know, you can do whatever you want. Um, I'm not going to get in your way. And I mean, slowly, because of what I was going through, he he realized the same things that I realized. Um, but I had to, and I feel glad that I did take the moment to actually say to him, look, this could really badly affect our relationship. And I did actually say to him that, you know, don't go asking advice from our pastor, please, because he does not care if we stay together or not. Now that I'm gone, no one in the church is going to be encouraging you to try and save me or stay with me or save our marriage or do what's good for our marriage. No one is going to encourage you to do that. So please just use your own mind to get through this. And he did. So how quickly after you guys met and, and realized that you liked each other, how long until you guys were married? Um. It was about a month, okay. a month and a half, maybe. He had to go back down to where he lived and get all of his stuff. I actually flew down there to meet um, his brother who had just <laughs> who had just moved over from Nepal and had moved to that city specifically to um, to live like with my husband 
he had literally just gotten there the week that my husband came to meet me and then my husband flew back down and said sorry I'm going I'm going 2,000 kilometers away to live with my wife now. Was the brother associated with the church? No, okay. no. His whole, uh, my husband's family are in the church. Um, his parents are, and his sister is, but his brother never was interested. And he's kind of, he's not totally against it, but he's kind of always, oh, what are you guys doing? And why are you doing that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, we had, I wanted to have a, like a proper wedding. Basically, I'm an Australian. Okay. So it's very common. Well, not common, but it's not uncommon for um, immigrants to marry Australians for a visa. <laughs> you know and it's it's sort of always a bit of a um it's a bit of a stereotype that if you're an a white australian marrying in person that you know they want to use you for a visa so i wanted to have a proper wedding so that basically so that my family weren't going to hate this guy and think that he was just using me for a visa <laughs> um so i had to plan all of that while I was working at the time my work was really busy I was working 14 hour days sometimes um and trying to plan this wedding <laughs> and trying to keep up with church stuff as well um yeah that was very very stressful and are you guys being taught that the world is like imminently coming to an end at any moment also absolutely okay absolutely Yes, I mean, it's in so many sermons. If you just go onto YouTube and listen to Kim Juchil's sermons, you can see that that's an overlaying theme in the Church of God. Like, and and it's in the Bible. Um, you know, I, I'm, I've completely renounced Christianity. It's definitely not for me. I do think that a lot of that's just Christianity. I mean, the world could end any time. Um, and we have to preach and save everybody before the world ends. Um, yeah, I was really into that as well. I was really, you know, the world could end tomorrow. There was no way that I was going to go making like a five-year plan. Or I remember my dad <laughs> telling me that, I should put extra money in my super while I'm young so that it earns more interest. Um, a su superannuation is like a 401k. It's like your retirement fund. And I was told, yeah, dad told me to put extra money in my super fund. <laughs> I was having the conversation with him going, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Mm, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm not going to waste my gospel money on my retirement. <laughs> is um is that mentality pretty typical among like the normal like quote unquote normal Christian society in Australia? Because in America there's so yeah. many fringe Christian groups. I mean, radical Christianity is really not that unheard of in America. Is it kind of the same yeah. in Australia too, or? Um, or I'm really. <laughs> 
I don't think that's a really good point because I say that, you know, the world ending is sort of just a general part of Christianity, but that type of um, mentality that just because the world's ending, we have to throw everything away and live for today, that's not common, I don't think. Because it is the undertone of all Christianity, like the belief. Yeah, but it's different. It's the undertone of their Christianity, but in the church of God, it's like real. And they talk about it every single day and you're like stockpiling all your end of day supplies. So it's different. I think it's a different objective. In the church of God, it's we have to preach to 7 billion people before the world ends. In normal Christianity, it's sort of like, let's have, you know, the best life that we can and have peace and have, you know, a relationship with Jesus and just live your life. <laughs> Casually spread the gospel as it comes up in conversation. Yeah. Really not like, let me attack yeah. you at the grocery store. And it's a lot, yeah, it's a lot more trusting in like, God doing the gospel work instead of you having to go out <laughs> do the gospel work. That's true. I do feel like that is missing a lot from um, the Wimscog like lifestyle. Is that it's it is so much on you guys as the members to orchestrate God's plan. Mm, absolutely, and that really um, that again <laughs> stressed me out a lot. I mean. <laughs> I feel like a completely, completely different person because, I mean, even before coming into the church, I was, you know, I was a bit of a radical person myself. And I I was thinking that oh, the world's in such a state. I think everybody needs to realize that we need God. Like that was my before Wemskog mentality. But when I came into the church and I was like, oh, wait, there's a whole group of people who actually think like that and are doing something about it. Um, Yeah, it was just where I wanted to be, which is, you know, that's fine. But I still, I mean, once you're in for a year or whatever and you've got something you need to do, or I don't know, you don't want to go preaching that day. Um, and you're sort of shamed for that, or you get disapproval, or for the next two weeks, you're kind of treated like a immature, you know, not really contributing member. Um, it's a whole different, whole different thing. And of course, there's the fact that whenever you speak to anybody, (laughs) I mean, I would, I wasn't just preaching during preaching time. I would preach all the time to everybody. (laughs) Um, I really, really believed that. Can you explain why you would preach to everybody that you would meet? Why, why, why would you do that? I just really, really believed so um intensely that in what I was being taught I mean if the world's gonna end tomorrow and if I don't preach to this person then their blood is on my hands 
how can I avoid that? You know, <laughs> I would it's feel so scary so not to. Yeah. Oh, it was the, and, and this is what I didn't realize until being out for a year that this is called cognitive dissonance and that this actually is part of what keeps you in as well. The guilt of not preaching to that person. I mean, for example, I would go in to a fuel station to get fuel for my car, not preach to the cashier. And then I'd go back and sit in my car for like five minutes <laughs> thinking about whether or not I should go back in and preach to this person. And then I would do it. <laughs> and people are so nice. <laughs> people are so nice here. Um, they're nice everywhere, you know, but I really. They're not very nice in America. No. <laughs> no. I'm walking up to a stranger and preaching to them. That to me sounds so stressful because in America, it's such a hit or miss. I guess some yeah. people are nice and some people are fucking crazy. <laughs> I can't imagine walking up to a stranger and preaching like the way that you guys did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm also in a, in a fairly small town. So, you know. People are just relaxed. They don't have too much to do. Is the church well known there? Do people know it as a quote unquote cult or do they think it's a good place? Do they do a lot of activity over there, like volunteer work and stuff? People definitely do not know about this church here. Um, in my town, we gained a bit of a reputation among the Christian community here because we were preaching about God the Mother and a few of the churches basically prepared their members and said, um, you know, this is what this church is preaching and it's heresy and this is what you should say if you meet them. We had people like try to take our picture when we preached to them, um, you know, if they were from a church so that they knew who we were. <laughs> Uh, but in Australia, I can definitely say that basically nobody knows about this church. And that's why I wanted to do this interview, because I think that people really do need to know about it. My family, um, when I first joined, knew that something was up and they were sort of warning me and saying, you know, be careful, you're spending a lot of time there, it's a bit weird, and, but because of the love bombing from, you know, I would bring church members to my house and get them to, like, love bomb my family, and, <laughs> uh, and it worked, um, you know, my family were kind of eventually charmed by me and by the members, um, obviously, they were probably pretty happy that I changed from being an alternative, you know, hippie. As much as I was, a, I was a responsible person. I mean, I was studying, I was working, um, I just looked different. But they were kind of happy that I was on this straight and narrow path. And uh, it wasn't until months after I left and I told them, the things that I had found out about the church, um, 
it actually I, I had to convince them that it was a bad place you know so I think that a lot of people really do need to understand the reality because the front that the Wemskog puts on is powerful and um it's so inaccurate and it works that love bombing is so powerful and they get you so quickly and then like you said your family started to get kind of a good impression of them and you know that but they don't really know what's happening behind and what's happening you know at 10 p.m 11 p.m 1 a.m you know all that uh hard work that you're doing in there so then so then when you after you and your husband got married did you guys become gospel workers right away did you become house church leaders what happened to you guys so we um we got married and then about a month after we got married we were it was suggested to us that we could go to a town about four hours away from where we were to start a house church um we had been the church had been preaching there a bit we had no members um there was I think we had we had maybe one or two and they were actually previous members of the church the original church um so yeah we moved we broke our lease and moved down there we got a rental set it all up um a lot of members had actually members from both my husband's church and my church had gathered money to gift to us for this house church so there was um thousands of dollars that they had collected from their own money to give to us and we used that all for supplies for this house um we preached there for a year and then we actually uh needed to go overseas so while we were there while we were in um Townsville preaching I was in a job that I absolutely hated (laughs) I hated it so much and my it was just the worst place for me to be but I couldn't leave um because I needed to pay rent for this house church and I just couldn't yeah before you get too far off I was gonna ask do they um buy the property and own it under the church name or you guys rented it is that what no, no. We rented it in our own name and we paid for it ourselves 100%. So all of it was in your name. So if anything goes sideways, it's all under your credit and all that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And two months after we had, I had quit my job that I'd been at for three years to move down there. And it was a good job. Um, two months after we moved down there, the pastor the, the missionary said to us, oh, look, you know, it's not really working out. Maybe you guys should come back. And my husband was, he was just like, yeah, okay, no problem. And I sort of pulled him aside and said, hang on a second. No, <laughs> I did not leave my job to come down here 
only to leave another job like this looks terrible on my resume. It looks terrible on our rental history because we will have broken two leases. Um, no, <laughs> it can't happen. So I did a very courageous thing and said no um, and explained to the missionary that, you know, that's just too much uh, inconvenience for us personally. I mean, we've moved towns to a, a town four hours away. Um, and, you know, he, 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 was, he was nice. He was a nice uh, young missionary. It was his first church. <laughs> so he, he's a nice person. Yeah, you must have felt um, comfortable enough in that scenario to say that. I mean, he must have been a, an oddball in the group. I can't imagine saying no for them to try to send you somewhere and then you say no. What happened when you said no? Um, he just kind of accepted it. <laughs> Until you guys um, stayed there in the house church? Yes, yeah. Wow. So we stayed there. We kept trying to preach. We did not get basically any members. Um, it did not <laughs> turn out the way we wanted it to. And, uh, yeah, we continued on like that. We had to travel back to the main church every month for Sabbath day. We had to keep all of the feasts at the main church because we didn't have enough members to, um, to keep it in town. So and you of had course, to drive four hours every Sabbath day and Thursday? Uh, no, no. Um, once a month we would month. travel. Four oh, hours. But then when there's a feast, that's like but five that's a, lot. a month. Yeah. Yeah. It, absolutely. Dang. It was a lot. I mean, I would never have done that if I was just living there myself. <laughs> if it wasn't for the church. Um and that costs a lot as well, you know, fuel, everything was supported by us. We were not uh my husband was at that time a sangdonim. He was a like seminary student um but yeah we were not supported by the church at all there there were times right when it would be down to like the last ten dollars and you have to figure out how to tithe it and then also how to eat lunch and it's 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 something else man so we needed to go to nepal for personal reasons so my husband is a nepali national um he he had been in Australia for 10 years when I met him. So he'd been here for a long time, but for personal reasons, we needed to fly over there. And I sort of said, well, look, if we're going to go over there, he had not been home by the way for 10 years. Um, so since he arrived, he had not been home. And I said to him, if we're going to go there, why not just stay there for, you know, a year? spend a year, help your parents. His parents were really struggling. They were looking after, um, they were looking after his, his grandma who was, you know, had dementia and was very infirm. So we decided to go over there and help them out and spend some time there. And I was really excited because of course, you know, you hear so much about Nepal in the church Nepal is like <laughs> the most 
there's the best gospel workers and they they know so much and they you know they're so good at studying and they you know walk for days to preach and all of these things so I thought I could learn so much from going there I thought it was going to be really great um so we packed up all of our stuff I said goodbye to my family and we went over there and this was in September of 2019 so little did we know that a few months later <laughs> the world was going to turn upside down um we never would have imagined that but it was really great i mean we went there i met his family they his parents are in the church they're like gospel workers he had preached to them um and he i don't know we just i i couldn't preach obviously i mean i couldn't speak fluent nepali and also if i was to knock on someone's door and try to tell them about heavenly mother i mean they're just the people there are very very uh extremely hospitable um they'll invite you in and give you tea and sit with you for like two hours especially as you know like a westerner um they would just be very excited to see me and they wouldn't concentrate on the bible study at all <laughs> so i didn't bother to preach but my husband did and uh we went to the church in Kathmandu several times but my husband's family are in Chitwan, so which is in the south of Nepal. So we went to church mainly there, which is a house church. So that was run by a very young couple who there was a deacon and a deaconess. Um, yeah, it's a it's a very you know it's an interesting story, especially knowing how. Um, Nepal is put up on a pedestal so basically the church where we were going the house church um it was very very uncomfortable because the I don't know the the members and the deacon and deaconess just didn't get along um it was really sad actually I felt really sorry for this young couple because they had you know, she was a registered, she was qualified as a registered nurse um, and she'd given up everything. And in Nepal, like if you give up a job as a registered nurse, it's, you know, you have no money. Um, they'd given up everything to be gospel workers and they'd gone to look after this house church and basically nobody really liked them and everyone was complaining about them all the time. And um there was never enough money and all of the members like had to give money to provide lunch on the sabbath day and there was not enough money because you know they're trying to just feed their families um trying to donate to a church is a lot especially to feed like 30 people um <laughs> many of whom you know maybe are not donating so I mean you know what it's like even for even in the west a lot of the churches 
Sabbath day lunch might be supported by like one or two people. Um, so you might be feeding 100 or 200 people from your own pocket sometimes. Um, so that's what it's like in Nepal as well. It's no different. So that was very, very uncomfortable and difficult. And my husband and I tried to support that couple. You know, we'd sort of go and spend some time with them and sort of let them know we understand how hard it is to be in charge of a house church. And, um, you know, we tried to comfort them. And they were really nice. They were really nice people. But I think that they were very harsh as leaders. So that was really difficult for the members. Um, and yeah, there was the church in Kathmandu. So one of the pastors in Kathmandu is actually, he's a pastor and he is, he is the main, one of the first people who brought like the gospel, quote unquote, the gospel to Nepal. One of the only pastors, I think, in the church who is not Korean. Yeah, the members, they do. They they preach hard, but it's no different from any other church. And I think the thing for me was really realizing how, how unhappy a lot of the people that I met were who were gospel workers and how burdened they seemed. You know, I can't speak for anyone else um, and how they're feeling, but I know that I definitely sensed that um, for the people who were making all of that effort, it's not it's not all rainbows and sunshine, like the way that it is portrayed in the videos that we're shown in the church. Sense of why they do that, like why the Wimscog presents Nepal, Nepal like that. Um, I think that. Part of it is to, um, so I think that there's a lot that goes into that particular piece of propaganda, actually. So Nepal is one of the poorest countries in the world. It's one of the least developed. Um, so basically, if you see a bunch of people who live in a country where you know, it's so difficult to make money. It's so difficult to do like a basic thing. And you see them preaching and preaching harder than you. Basically, it just gives the church an edge on your guilt meter so mm -hmm. that, um, you know, you never, no matter what you're going through, it's not worse than what they're going through. So you need to always try to match their effort. Um, I will say also that the people who are maybe like walking to Sertung to, to preach there, people walk days in Nepal all the time. Okay. They do it all the time to go and see their families. It is not uncommon. Um, <laughs> so it's, yes, it's a big feat, but it's like us driving for a few hours. You know, it's just part of life over there. Um, and also the reason why the church uses, you know, these like poorer countries and less developed countries to create propaganda um, 
is I think also to encourage those countries to show that even though maybe the churches are not able to financially contribute as much, um, the members are not able to financially contribute as much, but I think it's also a bit of a an encouragement to them to keep doing what they're doing and to kind of give them some praise for that. It's like the same way that that you know they made a whole video about the Dubai church, which is an apartment with maybe 20 members and you know they're calling it the stage of the world gospel because um you know the few members that they do have are from all different countries and then they go to their countries and preach but i think that the thing with the propaganda is that it's always a lot no matter how no matter how dire the situation in the video seems to be the way that they spin it to you is that it's such a great thing and the fact is that it's not <laughs> it's not it's a lot of sacrifice from people who are actually doing that work for a church that is not honest about their doctrine or about um, their activities <laughs> And the way that they utilize um, the funds that members give to them, you know. While you were in Nepal, is that kind of when your mind started switching from your viewpoint yes. of the Wimscock? Is that? Yeah, it yeah. was, Lindsay, yeah. Um, so December 2019 uh, was when coronavirus started to trickle into the news and um then there was lockdown and Nepal was no different you know there was everything was locked down we couldn't go to church we couldn't go anywhere it was pretty scary actually um and yeah I was there for the entire time during lockdown so we were keeping home worship service um which was really interesting to see how that made everybody feel and to see how, you know, my mother and father-in-law and how my husband were kind of so relieved by that, the relief of pressure from having to get to church. And, you know, it was, it was so much easier to just keep home worship service. Um, and also, you know, not having to preach and all of that. So, then after it was more towards the end of lockdown and it was actually it was actually when lockdown ended um and everybody was going back to church and i really did not want to go back to church <laughs> I, it was just i i basically you know um i was very depressed at the time um the whole time that we were in Nepal, my family was actually going through like a crisis, really depressed because I couldn't go home. And um, I just could not face going to church and worshiping when I was so sad. Um, and I managed to convince the church to let me keep home worship service while everyone else was going to church. And this was actually done for 
quite a few people, I think, when we were all starting to go back and lots of people didn't want to go back. Um, I did hear of a few people who were still keeping home worship service and, you know, making excuses like, oh, I'm sick or, or whatever to, to not go. Um, and yeah, I guess one day I just secretly didn't keep the service. <laughs> Everybody thought I was at home keeping home worship service and I just skipped it. <laughs> um, and I mean, I had not skipped a service at that time in many years. So, you know, it's a very strange feeling. But after that, <laughs> I just kind of mostly kept skipping services. And every time that I did try to keep a service, um, it's hard for me to think back and remember exactly how I was feeling. But I remember feeling angry and thinking, I can't sing these songs. I cannot sing these songs because I just don't agree with them. I'm angry at this God. Um, and I don't even remember why I was angry, but I just didn't, I just didn't, uh, yeah, agree with the church anymore. I had seen also a lot of like a few things that happened in Nepal. Like there was one, there was one couple who um, were forbidden to get married. They wanted to get married and the church had said that they can't get married to each other because they're not like the right fit for each other. And they got married anyway. And they were not allowed to keep, at this point it was home worship service. So they weren't allowed to keep home worship service with their family members. They had to keep the worship service in a different room to their family members. Um, and this was a guy who was, he was a presider and he was the nicest, like he worked so hard for the church and uh, he was really, him and his wife were really hurt by that. How strange too, to, to tell them they couldn't get married. They were both members. Yeah. Yeah. They were both, she was like a, a gospel worker and he was a, presider it was just purely like the control of it like they didn't organize it so they didn't want it yeah yeah That's very 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 strange very strange interesting what a like what a crazy time for you because you're like in a country where you don't speak the language you're with your husband's family you must have felt so isolated while this pandemic is happening I mean COVID was hard for everybody, but yours is one of the hardest scenarios that I've heard so far. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a really, really hard time. And I mean, that's sort of one of the things I think that solidified my husband and I's relationship. Um, he supported me so beautifully through that time. And, uh, you know, yeah, he just took care of me so well, um, never, never isolated me himself. And how long was it between the time you left and you didn't, you know, you didn't want to keep service anymore. And then the time that your husband didn't want to go anymore. So it's kind of hard for me to remember exactly when I stopped 
keeping the service. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I might have stopped keeping service around maybe December-ish of 2020. And he stopped going 2022, so okay. recently. He just left. Yeah. When you stopped keeping home service in Nepal, did did they know? Did him and his family know? Or were you like secretly pretending still like, oh, yeah, my home <laughs> service was great. How was the physical service? <laughs> yeah, I would pretend. <laughs> Until you I would came home from Australia, and then and then until you came home to Australia. Yeah, I think I told my husband, um, and he kind of was like, "Oh, okay, well, you know, try to like, you know." He understood. He's just such an understanding person, but he kind of encouraged me to like try to get through it, and. Um, you know, he didn't push me. He wasn't angry at me or anything. He just understood that I was doing what I could to get through. Like I really was, I was trying to hold on to my faith. I didn't want to let it go at the time. Sorry, I know I'm not answering your question, but I, I just want to explain that at the time, um, I really felt when I decided that I no longer believed in this, I really felt like my parents had died. Like I, the day, like the day that I made the decision in my mind to not participate anymore, I knew that like I had lost something and I didn't feel so much as if, oh, I'm a sinner and I've lost God. It was more like, I don't know, maybe I knew that I'd been lied to and I'd sort of lost what I thought. Um was my heavenly parents and now I had to let them go so that was really hard I felt like someone had died um it was very very a grief process so he could see that I was going through that and I was trying really hard to get through it I love your husband he sounds so lovely he sounds like such a nice person that he supported you like that and then you also supported him right because he continued to go to the church um, at that time, were you looking things up on the internet? Were you like little by little starting to find things out? And then. So my uh, journey that way in accessing information was began by um, actually watching YouTube videos about Jehovah's Witnesses who had left the Jehovah's Witness Church. And I I watched them under the guise of, oh, well, I just want to find out, you know, um, about these Jehovah's Witnesses because they're so bad and <laughs> all of this. And, uh, yeah, I just started watching more and more videos about ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, um, ex-Mormons and other religions. Um, I did not research anything about the church of god until about a year later when my husband started to sort of question things that's when i started researching about the church and that opened a can of worms um (laughs) the biggest can of worms so yeah the beginning of it was very I was just afraid and I didn't want to know. I didn't want to have to reason things in my mind. Um, 
I just kind of thought, well, you know, if I'm going to go to hell, that's cool with me. Like I'd rather do that, (laughs) which is, it sounds silly, but I guess I didn't really believe that I was going to go to hell. I just thought, oh, well, I don't want to be part of what those people are doing. I'm just going to do my own thing. So if that's, if, if God isn't pleased with me, then, you know, that's fine. I'll, I'll got some things to say to him as well. So yeah, I was very, um, very angry, (laughs) I think for a while. I think it's so interesting that you truly left purely based on the things that you saw in front of you and not based off of things that you found out about the church that were happening around you outside an experience. I mean, you truly just stepped back and saw your experience that you're having yeah I didn't look at um because I was told of course very early on not to look at anything on the internet about the church and uh I just didn't (laughs) ever um I had never seen an ex-member's story or any um online material I think I might have very early on, I looked at Wikipedia about An Sang Hong and um, I asked the pastor about it and he, you know, told me that it was wrong or whatever. Um, my family had looked online and they asked me about it and I told them that it was all lies and <laughs> they believed me. Um, so, no, it really was. I mean, I have seen a lot of things, even though my experience has actually been way better than a lot of other people. Um, All of the overseers that I have been come into contact with um, as my overseers have been nice people. Um, They've been nice to me. They haven't been pushy, but when you came back to Australia, do you feel like you were shunned when you got home from everybody but your husband, or were they pretty nice about it? So nobody in Australia knew what I was going through, and I actually tried to keep going to church when we got back. Um, I I went to church, and it was, oh, my gosh, my gosh, it was so hard to sit there and I wouldn't sing, like I wouldn't sing the songs. I'd just pretend to sing um, and just leave in between services. So I think that, you know, my small church was kind of understanding. They knew that I'd been through a bit, you know, being overseas for that long. Um, But when I left, when I actually stopped going to worship services, um, they they did some of the girls uh, who I had, you know, I've been with these girls since I got to church. So seven years I had been with them um, and they were Korean members. They did like they sent me some text messages and they were like, hey, you know, come to church. And uh, they really, they just sent me messages like 
reminding me that it was the Sabbath day and stuff like that. And at one point, um, they came over to my house and I invited them in and I was like, guys, you know, I don't really understand you at all right now because if I were you and someone that I had known for seven years disappears, (laughs) I wouldn't just be sending them messages going, hey, come to church. I would be at their door, knocking on their door going, are you okay? Like, what's happening? You know, like, how how are you? What can I do for you? You know, and they, they did not do that at all. And I don't blame them. I know that they are, um, you know, they're very heavily indoctrinated and they can't help the fact that, you know, they, they have this block towards creating any personal relationship. Um, but that is how I was treated. And that was only like the two gospel worker girls who I've been with for so long made contact with me. Um, And at this time, don't like, I was really depressed. (laughs) You know, I was really struggling Um, and I could have used some support, but you know, they just, they only cared if I was going to church. And as far as they were concerned, I was kind of like a dangerous person because I wasn't going to church. Um, That's what I was going to say. Sounds like like they were more afraid to really ask you why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I tried to be like nice to them. I was like, hey, you know, I'm not I'm not saying I hate you or anything like that, but maybe you should take a look at yourself. You know? Um and, you know, after that, they tried to sort of make these little attempts to, you know, oh, let's go out for bubble tea or something. And I was like, I know you're just trying to preach to me. Go away. You know, no, you're too late. Sorry. Um, and no one else contacted me. Um, my husband also told me that all of my pictures got taken down <laughs> from <laughs> from the the cork board I mean they'd been up there for you know all of the pictures of our volunteer activities anything with me and it was taken down <laughs> oh how interesting you had inside scoop on what was happening after you leave <laughs> yeah Tony did yeah. that with your husband Tony's husband left before she did do you, do you remember that happening with him what do you mean like I would give him information no, do you remember like seeing them remove him, like um, evidence of him from the church after he was done going? Because you guys have the similar story, except for Tony's the one who stayed in a little bit longer than her husband after he stopped going. Um, it was almost as though he died, like to the church members. Like nobody really spoke about him, but everybody was very sad if his name got brought up. You know, like, oh, yeah, poor brother. It's like, guys, no, he's just right under the street. He's probably, like, enjoying himself way better than we are. <laughs> but, yeah, so they probably were, like, in mourning for you, too, you know. Yeah. Oh, I have no doubt. I mean, I had 
I loved the, I still love, you know, the people there. And I think about reaching out to them. Sometimes it's just, you know, I worry that I don't want to sort of um, scare them. Because <laughs> I know that they probably think I'm, I'm, you know, demon possessed or um, that I'm going to be a hindrance to their faith. So, Did yeah. you and your husband ever have children? No, um, we don't have children, but we plan to have kids. Um, we are just sort of getting our lives together before we do. So we, I was just curious if you were, were you guys encouraged to have children? Were you in there? Were you discouraged? What was it like over there? I mean, I had decided pretty early on, like within a few years of joining the church, I had decided that I was not going to have kids. It just seemed, and, and no one, no one really ever told me that like you shouldn't, but you notice, you notice that no one's having kids. Um, you notice that, I mean, one of the gospel workers got married and got pregnant and um, she was really depressed throughout her pregnancy and no one really sort of like did anything for her or was happy about her pregnancy. Um, and then eventually she was so depressed that the, the female gospel workers got together and had a meeting with her. Um, the Koreans did anyway, because she was Korean. And I was told that she burst out in tears and she was so embarrassed that she was pregnant and all of that. Um, so, you know, there's definitely, I, I don't know how that message actually gets through to you, but somehow the message gets through that kids are, hindrance um I think it's pretty openly spoke spoken about that kids are a hindrance to the gospel work if you've got kids how can you go out and preach and you know even in one of Kim Duchill's books it's um told that once once you have a baby like if you're in the if you've just had a baby you can still preach during the time that you could be like when your baby's sleeping or <laughs> whatever. Um, so, you know, it's too hard to have kids. Um, and also you see some of the people, you know, and sorry to say this for anyone who's in the church who does have kids, but you see some of the people who have kids and the life that the kids have and the relationships that they have with their parents and what the parents have to do to the kids to keep them you know, acceptable, their behavior acceptable to the church. And it's just, I wouldn't want that. Um, so it's a choice you kind of have to make. And uh, my husband was of the same mind. He, you know, didn't want kids. And we discussed that when we met. We both agreed that we didn't want to have kids so that we could do gospel work. Um, we both understood that it was so that we could do gospel work, we wouldn't have kids. And we discussed how that was a sacrifice that we were willing to make. So, um, but over the years, we sort of, we looked at also some of the couples who didn't have kids and how that affected them. Um, I, you know, sort of dabble in health and wellness. So I was looking at how that affects um, 
a woman's hormones not going through the childbearing process. Um, and that's fine, you know, if there's anyone who doesn't want to have kids or, or can't have children, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's your choice, <laughs> you know, like it needs to be your choice, not something that you're coerced into. <laughs> What um I don't know anything about like abortion laws or anything in Australia, do you, Tony? Is it like pretty free out there? Like if you decide to go have an abortion, it's pretty accessible. Or is it illegal or is there a political um, conversation around it at all? Um, no, it's legal here. I I don't have a lot of knowledge around it. Um I think it's something that you can basically get done at like a hospital. There's not really, I've never heard of or seen an abortion center, but the population is very, like it's, the population is small here. So they might only exist in the bigger cities. I don't really know. But, but you could try call your doctor and make it, it's like a medical procedure. It's not, yeah, yeah. there's not like a, a huge, you don't have to walk through like a bulletproof, in a bulletproof vest, no. like through a crowd of like crazy yeah, so. religious people screaming at you. No, and I think that a lot of people, like most people here, are fairly pro-choice. I mean, if you if you met a pro-life person, it would be that person would have the unpopular opinion. Um, okay. But it's funny, like the story about abortions too, because my husband was told when he was a youth um, in his church, they were showing a video because there was quite a few youth. Um, they were showing a video about how abortions were a sin and if you had an abortion then you were going to go to hell or something. Whereas I was told that, and this is um, also at a time when I had a boyfriend, I was fairly new, and I was told that it's okay to have abortions because the breath of life only comes to the baby like when they're born. So they don't have a soul until they're born. Um, so you can have abortions. <laughs> and and that actually badly affected my view of pregnant women. And my sister went through a pregnancy after I was told that. And I was kind of like, not cold to her, but I was just like, oh, well, there's no point like rubbing her belly and talking to the baby because it doesn't have a soul. So, yeah, it's, I feel really bad for that. That's so interesting that they were teaching um, different things. It's almost like they're not, they haven't really decided how they want to approach that conversation. I think, oh, I, I think that they have decided that they just approach it however they need to, depending on the person. That's a really good point. That sounds the most honest of. Depending on your faith, according to your faith. I don't know <laughs> if they say that out there, but they do that. <laughs> they do say oh that. Oh, my God. I'm so glad that you and your husband are out. I'm so happy. And now you guys have your own choices that you can make and you can do whatever you want to do. Are you guys just loving life now as a free, free couple? Yeah, we really are. Um, he's really enjoying himself. Is he okay? And yeah, he's. Um, is he doing okay emotionally, or is he having a hard time at all? Yeah, it goes up and down. Um, and it's it's sort of interesting because 
I've already been through all of the ups and downs emotionally and I'm sort of watching him go through it um, and trying to be not like too happy sometimes <laughs> because it can be hard for him. But, uh, you know, he's okay. I mean, he's generally okay. And uh, at times we just have conversations about like the church and about how he feels about all of that um, and just letting him debrief. I think that it helps once you get to the stage where you can look at some of the information about the actual church, because until then, I mean, he's just sort of in a phase where he just doesn't care. He just wants to live his life. <laughs> okay. So he's, so right now he's in the like, okay, let's pretend that didn't happen. Let me just kind of like get, gather my bearings phase. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, I I feel like we all go through that. I, I yeah, I feel yeah. like I did too. Um, so what was it? So when you when you did your research, it was there one specific thing that really, you know, made you really think that that was a cult? So one thing that always stuck in my mind was when I watched a documentary about Scientology. Um, it's called Going Clear. And the um, one of the former members of Scientology said that the members of Scientology are crazy. They'll put on a big smile, but they've got the biggest migraine because they haven't slept but they're happy, they're so good, and they've got this big smile on their face. That always stuck in my mind, and I could not help but <laughs> attribute that um, to the Wimscog. So there was that. Um, but, I mean, there wasn't really... No, there wasn't really any information... Um, do you mean like when I was looking at leaving or after? Yeah, um, yeah kind of both, you know, was there something well, that there was just like. That made me think that while I was in the process of leaving, it wasn't until way later. Um, and I, I, I really was not comfortable with using the word cult for so long. Um, until I actually came across the story of Michelle Cologne's lawsuits, I think that's what really made me think, wow, that's absolutely <laughs> terrible. Did, do, um, do you think that people out in Australia know about the lawsuits? No, no. I actually came across an article about some lawsuit. I don't even know if it was Michelle's. Um, I came across that while I was in the process of leaving. But that lawsuit, I don't think it is Michelle's because this lady was saying that she was um, told to have an abortion. Um and she was suing the church for that. But anyone in the church does not know about anything outside of the church. 
<laughs> that's my belief, especially in Australia, because, for example, those lawsuits, um, you guys can have access to them if you just go to the website, but I'm not sure that I could because I'm not like an American citizen. So I don't know. I don't know how that works, but. There could be lawsuits all over the world and how are we ever going to find out? So if you guys know about any lawsuits happening, let us know because I'm really curious what's happening, you know, also in Nepal and other places all over the world. I think that in the, like the South Asian countries, it's less likely that there will be lawsuits because I mean, the, the law is different, but also the court is not necessarily um, where you want to go. And uh, there's no way that the average person can afford to go through that um, process. It would put them into really a dangerous situation. Um, what do people do there if they're if they find themselves in an abusive situation? I mean, do they call the police? Ah, it's actually really sad. They just kind of live with it. Um, There's lots of domestic abuse. There's, you know, those things happen. I mean, your best hope is that you have family who will support you. And that's not always the case. Do you think that's why the church is so... um why the church thrives so much there because there isn't a lot of accountability um i don't know i'm talking about nepal i think my personal theory is that um so the way that it would normally work over there is that you belong to whatever religion your family belongs to and you don't go outside of that so freedom of thought is already not really encouraged um and that's also my theory of why um there's so many cults in korea as well because uh basically what's it called um critical thinking is not uh encouraged or taught as much as it is in the west um that now, makes sense too and there's like a cultural tie to this is my family inheritance and the religion kind of comes from that it goes to, it's the same as over here like most people here come from a christian background so we celebrate christmas and easter and those sorts of things over there it's uh like Diwali and, um, you know, different festivals that they have there and they're religious festivals. They're either Buddhist or Hindu. Um, They don't celebrate Christmas over there. So the religion ties into the culture and the family. So then when they're told about something like this, where there's Heavenly Mother and she loves you and there's love bombing, um, I think that just kind of gets people where oh I can have a different and they're encouraged to think for them like quote unquote think for themselves but it's not really thinking for themselves (laughs) thinking the way that these people want you to think now um 
I think it gives some people a sense of freedom and independence to like take charge of their own religion. So that's my personal theory, but I don't really know. <laughs> and now they're probably building generations. You know, I saw so many children in the Nepal videos. So now they'll just have generations of church members. The children there are, there's a lot of pressure put onto them. Um, and, you know, it's, it's common for kids there to know how to sweep a floor and put shoes away and stuff like that. It's, you know, what we see in the videos. Um, I know in Australia, the kids aren't doing that. <laughs> you know, they're not sweeping the floors and putting the shoes away. But I don't know. I've seen a lot of kids over there who they just do that. It's just kind of part of their life. It's just different. So um, it's not necessarily like that, oh, they're enjoying it so much and they're getting blessings. No, they're just told to do that and they just do it because otherwise they'll get probably yelled at. <laughs> um, I know that the kids at the church where I went to, it was pretty intense. They would get in big trouble if they didn't do the right thing and, you know, they would get pinched and stuff like that as well. So, yeah, they they were pretty afraid. Um the pinching the, thing. That sounds um, very universal through the Wimscog. I've heard the pinching thing a few times. No, it's not very nice. There were some young student girls as well who, you know, they knew how to behave, but some of them, like, just went off to different countries to to work and kind of ditched the church. So <laughs> I think they were just waiting. <laughs> waiting until they can get away yeah and I mean I don't want to offend anyone I don't want anyone to think that you know I'm just sort of down on having uh, a different way of life or anything like that I really do not care how people want to live their life the thing that concerns me about this church is that you are manipulated and that there are tactics involved that are they're known around the world to be used by groups who want to control you um that's what I don't like and it's different being a lay member to being a gospel worker as well you know the the expectation is different um I remember a pastor saying to me that, oh, we can't, we can't stop anyone from seeing their families. No, you can't stop someone physically from seeing their family, but you can disapprove and you can cause someone to feel as though that's the wrong thing to do. And you being in a position of power, uh, that's really irresponsible. <laughs> So I don't care like what people do with their life, with their kids, whatever you want to do does not bother me at all. Um, you know, and I'm not down even on this particular church, like, you know, the culture, there's good things about it. I've learned some good things, um, you know, being around everyone every day, it's nice, um, but it's not nice when you are being you know 
when social manipulation is being used against you to make you do those things and when excessive amounts of your time and money are expected um, from you and will leave you in a place where you might not necessarily even have needed to be. Um, people make choices based on the you know, thinking of this church, which has a faulty doctrine even, um, they make life, huge life choices. You know, I chose not to go to university and to, to, to go to this church. And let me tell you, no one, no one who I told who was gospel workers about that said to me, hey, you know, are you sure? Like, that's going to really affect your life, you know? They don't care about where you end up. They just care that you're a gospel worker. That's it. I've done a lot of, you know, actually work in like the mental health field and stuff like that as well. So I kind of, I have a bit more of a um, toolkit to get through those things. So I didn't, um, I have had a couple of nightmares um, but I didn't feel so much like, oh no, I don't want to run into any church members. Like I don't mind running into church members. I kind of want to, you know, I, I want to like show them how happy I am and <laughs> show them I'm not a demon. <laughs> do you, do you suggest anything like, uh, uh, do you have like a number one suggestion for anybody leaving or dealing with any like lingering lingering side effects after leaving the Wimscock? Yeah. Um, my number one thing to say to anybody who has been or is involved in this church is to be very, very honest with yourself. Just be brutally honest with yourself, whatever that means, because at the end of the day, it's your life, whether you want to be in or whether you want to be out. Um, you have to look at what you know really deep down and um, just accept that that's your inner knowledge and just trust yourself. That's my biggest piece of advice because, you know, we're really taught not to trust ourselves and that can be a really difficult thing to relearn, but you will guide yourself in the way that you need to go and just, you know, follow your intuition. Try to let go of some of the fear because fear is what will keep you trapped in any situation. So, you know, maybe just find someone who can maybe support you, reach out to a friend um, or a family member, and they will, they will welcome you. They will welcome you back. I've reconnected with friends who, you know, I basically haven't spoken to since joining the church and told them what I've been through. And they, you know, have um, overwhelmingly supported me. And I know that it's the same for a lot of people who leave. So just maybe find someone who can, who you can, um, just get some real love from. I just 
really, <laughs> it, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a dream, I guess, but I just really hope that anybody who is in still at the moment who knew me or knew my husband and is confused, um, you know, about why we left, I just really want them to live a good life and live a happy life. <laughs> and, you know, that if they want to find out the truth about this church that they do and that they do their research at some point because um, there's a lot of lies involved and that's not what I was expecting, but that's that's the fact. So, and it's sad, but yeah, I just hope that anyone who is um, living a life where they're kind of trapped that they can live a free life unfortunately I think they want to get like as much money as they can um and I did not believe that for a really long time I did not believe it was about money but I do believe it's about money now so and to make people work for free day night and go preaching 500 times a day and try to bear fruit and to keep it going and move them to house churches it's yeah. a, it's um I mean, there's a lot of churches that, you know, that their members contribute and that, um, you know, their members just go like once or once a week or once a month. And but they're a lot smaller. Um, they could do that. I'm sure they could do that. There's beautiful people in this church. Um, How many churches do you think are in Australia? Uh, Wimscock churches. So, Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, Adelaide, not Perth. So I think there's maybe four main ones and then each of them has a few branches. I know the Melbourne church has a few branches. The Sydney church has a few branches. Um, the Adelaide church, I think, is just one church. So maybe like less than 10. I I'm so happy that we got to meet you and talk to you because you really helped us get a clearer picture of not just in Australia, but also in Nepal. I feel like um, you really let us see what's really going on there, not just what they're feeding us in the church. Yeah, I did. I really wanted to share um, my story because of that, because I do definitely feel that we're just taught that these countries are, I don't know what it is. I don't know. I can't even put my finger on what it is that we're exactly told, but they're kind of put up on a pedestal of, you know, that they know how to do it. They know how to get it done. And they're so joyful, even though it's so hard there. And it's just not the case. Tara, do you want to end this episode with a good old boom baby? <laughs> I do. I'm going to add my, you'll have your first boom baby in an Aussie accent. So boom baby. 